Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special Point North one-shot on the 1984 classic, yeah, I said classic, The NeverEnding Story. I have literally just finished watching this film again, and I am still humming the theme tune because that music, man, that music is just fantastic. I don't care what anybody says. Admittedly, I can only stand about 40 seconds of it. This is not something that I would have on repeat through the entire day, but it is still wonderful and it's no surprise that it was such a hit thank you all so much for joining me i have been thinking about the never-ending story and and doing exactly this kind of discussion of the never-ending story for what feels like months now this was one of the formative movies of my childhood it was really this and willow for the longest time and since i've already covered willow I figured it was time to talk about The NeverEnding Story, and it is no surprise, of course, that The NeverEnding Story is as important as it is to me, as important as it is, I think, to all of us, because The NeverEnding Story is a story about stories. It was only while watching it this time that I realized what a fantastic double feature it would make with The Princess Bride, another story which I would contend is primarily about stories, though admittedly the barrier between the quote-unquote real world and the quote-unquote fictional world is a little less permeable in the context of The Princess Bride, but hopefully I'll be talking about that very soon too. Thank you all so much for joining me tonight. We've got Aaron and Angela and Becca and Elizabeth and Gildarts Winters is here. Gildarts, I always say your name fully. I don't know why that is, except that it is just so good. I just like that very much. Um, Let's talk then about The NeverEnding Story because there's a great deal to discuss. The NeverEnding Story is based on a novel by Michael Ende, which was published in 1979 in German and then in 1983 in English translation. The novel was pretty much immediately a huge success and attracted some really interesting and surprisingly for the time sophisticated critical attention because of its very unusual two-part structure. It's an ambitious and well-realized structure structure that I'm now convinced I will need to study in depth. So there will probably be at one point a one-shot on the novel version of The NeverEnding Story too, because the movie really only occupies half of the book. It covers the first half of the book. Within the frame of the book, after Fantasia is destroyed, Bastian effectively starts the book over again and retells the story with, with notable changes, basically. He, he builds momentum through the back half of the book in order to arrive at the kind of conclusion that we get right at the end of the movie, which is really interesting. That is a piece of reflexive storytelling, the likes of which I think I've never seen in a different context. I don't think I've ever seen a story do... A story have that kind of relationship with itself, with its frame, with its reader. It's a really provocative take on, on this kind of transactive fantasy fiction. Of course, that transaction itself speaks profoundly to me. My love of stories, my love of myth, and the ways in which we change stories by reading them and stories change us in return, it's enormously powerful. So we'll definitely be talking about the book at some point, but tonight only the movie. The majority of the movie was shot in Munich, Germany, with some sets in Vancouver, Canada, and Almeria in Spain. Its budget was an estimated $27 million, which at the time made it the most expensive movie in history produced outside of either the United States or the Soviet Union. So this was absolutely unprecedented in terms of its international success. And though it cost $27 million, it took almost $20 million in its native Germany, which is shocking. Germany, even now, has 
a very complicated relationship with its own kind of cultural landscape. And for a German-produced piece of media, even a German-produced piece of media produced largely in English with English collaboration, is was surprising at the time and remains distinctive even now, 30 years later. When the movie was complete, Enda was somewhat less than happy with it. He actually tried to halt production while they were shooting it and failed. Then when principal photography was finished and the movie was in the editing process, he asked that the name be changed. The producers declined to change the name of the film. So he then sued them and lost. He was not happy about it. He described the movie as, quote, that revolting film and, quote, a gigantic melodrama of kitsch, commerce, plush, and plastic, which I can only imagine is more damning and devastating in the original German than it is in English translation. Um, that objection, by the way, seems to be the root of the reason why we've never had a remake of The NeverEnding Story. People have been talking about a remake. There was brief discussion in the late 1990s, and then Warner Brothers began to try to remake the movie with, with some serious effort in 2009, and in 2012 basically announced this is never going to happen. We're just never going to get the rights to remake this movie. So this is it. This version of the never-ending story is all that we are going to get, which on the one hand, I think is probably for the best, given the recent track record of remakes of this kind. But at the same time, one of their stated goals when attempting the remake was to explore some of the subtlety and some of the more adult themes, adult-oriented themes, I suppose, contained within the book. It was supposed to be a more philosophically inclined piece of storytelling. So while I'm glad that we have this version and I'm glad that we haven't had a diluted, more commercial version, more accessible and formulaic version of The NeverEnding Story, I think there is an idealized form of this story which gets, you know, the Peter Jackson treatment, gets some of the, the weight and the gravitas that the original book demands and deserves. So even though the movie doesn't replicate the structure of the novel, it's still, I think, much more ambitious than many other children's fantasy stories from the same period. We've previously talked in Point North one-shots about both Willow aforementioned Willow, and Labyrinth, which share some connective tissue. There, there's some shared DNA between Labyrinth and Willow and the never-ending story, not least of all, of course, because of the involvement of Jim Henson's Creature Workshop, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. So we're presented with this, this ambitious framing device, which only becomes more ambitious as we move through the story, and even, to some extent, stops being a framing device by the time we reach the end of the film. Again, something which I don't think I've ever quite seen replicated. I don't think I've ever seen a story take this kind of approach. So that's surprising and valuable in and of itself. We get the brilliantly named Bastian Balthazar Bucks, played by Barrett Oliver, and then we move into the core narrative featuring, of course, Noah Hathaway as Atreyu. Uh, Noah Hathaway, known to some of us of a certain vintage as Boxy from the original Battlestar Galactica. Uh, he still acts from time to time, as well as running a tattoo parlor in Los Angeles. Noah Hathaway is, and I'll give you just a second to brace yourselves for the enormity of this revelation, Noah Hathaway is now 46 years old. We are all never as old as we are right now. Barrett Oliver, by contrast, uh, appeared in the movie Daryl and in both Cocoon movies. He was pretty much everywhere in the 1980s, but stopped acting in 1989 and now teaches photography in Los Angeles, which I can only imagine teaches photography just down the street from Noah Hathaway's tattoo parlor. That seems appropriate. Tammy Stronach, who plays the childlike empress, has only four acting credits to her name, two of which are currently in production, but she did have a very successful career as a dancer. 
it was really only while watching the movie this time that I was struck by just how good she is, how extraordinarily good she is with some really tough and clunky dialogue. She really carries the, the climax of this movie alone. She is responsible for the emotional success of this film and the, the cathartic release that we get with the restoration of Fantasia. She does beautiful work. The creature effects throughout the movie, as I said earlier, are all by the Jim Henson Creature Workshop. This is not... I think it's fair to say either the most famous or the most well-regarded piece of work that the Jim Henson Creature Workshop was involved with. But I do think that it stands apart. Falcor in particular, I think, stands apart as a genuinely magnificent creation. It took 25 puppeteers simultaneously working Falcor to make that puppet work. And he's not alone. Watching it this time, I was... Impressed, I guess, as I always am by Rockbiter and more impressed than I have ever been by Gmork. Gmork is a particularly interesting creation um, and genuinely disquieting, genuinely disturbing. I should say perhaps that I watched this film for the first time not long after its release. I would have watched this in perhaps 85 or 86. So I would have been seven or eight years old. And I remember watching this movie pretty frequently over the course of a long summer. I identified a great deal with young Bastian, of course, as I'm sure many of us did, and his desire to retreat from the real world into the solace of books, to escape the, the mundane tyrannies of school and of bullies into magical realms, into Fantasia itself. So this always was a story that spoke to me, and I'm very glad now to get the opportunity to, uh, to return to it. Let me see. Um, Becca says, I always love the creatures. The creatures are are extraordinary. And Angela is very surprised that that's boxy. Yes, that's that's really boxy. I have heard from a handful of people over the course of the last week, a handful of, of female viewers of the Point North one-shots. Uh, I say female. Yes, all women, I think, who admitted that uh, Noah Hathaway was something like a first crush, that that he was uh, that he was uh, very striking when they first watched this movie. Um, yes, uh, Aaron is calling out here, the Empress has some bad dialogue, but is just as skilled as Natalie Portman as Padme. I hope you're not damning with faint praise there, Aaron. I hope that's not... Uh, I hope that's not... Uh, uh, some unnecessary criticism of Natalie Portman as Padme Amidala, because... Well, there's some well-deserved criticism of Padme, uh, of Natalie Portman as Padme Amidala, but uh, she manages to do some good work under adverse circumstances, I guess. Go listen to Story in Star Wars, available now at pointnorthmedia.com. Um, <laughs> Becca says, I used to make my parents rent it from Blockbuster when that was a thing. Yes, Blockbuster also, one of those odd threads of synchronicity that is tying this week together. We just discussed uh, chapter 11 of American Gods and last night's Storms on the Way when references made to the imminent arrival of Blockbuster in the small town of Lakeside, which is something that you could really only have said in the year 2001. Now, of course, we live in a post-Blockbuster world and I think are all the better for it, honestly. Though I too have those fond memories of going down to my local video store and making my choice, making my selection and, and having, that, uh, having that somewhat more... <laughs> having that somewhat more necessary process of selection than we get now that we have basically all the world's entertainment available to us 24 hours a day. The film score of The NeverEnding Story is composed by Klaus Doldinger of the German jazz group Passport and is 
in the British version, the British version, excuse me, in the English version of this film, um, I think that the theme song overshadows the score pretty comprehensively. I think that when you think of the never-ending story, it's difficult sometimes to think of the orchestral arrangement that accompanies this film. In the German version, there was no theme song. That song that we all know by Lamal was not present in, in the German version. And so the score stood by itself. And I think I was paying very close attention watching it this last time. And I think that the orchestral score is actually really rather good. It is a little overblown. I think it is a little given to indulgent excess when perhaps it would work slightly more powerfully, slightly more directly, were it a little more restrained. But there's something to that. There's something in its abundance and excess that speaks to the the breadth of Fantasia itself. So I, I really like the score, actually. But we should talk, of course, about the uh, about the actual song by Christopher Lamal Hamill, performed, I should say, by Christopher Lamal Hamill uh, of Kajagugu fame, if fame is indeed the word, and Beth Anderson. It was released as a single in 1984, the year that the movie was released. It peaked at number four on the UK sales chart, number six on the US Billboard, uh, Billboard Adult Contemporary chart, and number 17 on the Billboard Top 100. It has been covered by a million different bands. There are punk covers, there are metal covers, there are all kinds of covers of the song. I urge you to go down that YouTube rabbit hole. I urge you, just go search for covers of The NeverEnding Story and, and spend an enjoyable couple of hours listening to weird and baroque arrangements of this song you will never ever get it out of your head i'm going to be humming it for the rest of this evening even after we're done here yes <laughs> oh good we're, we're speaking up in defense of padme amidala that's excellent um jane mcconaughey uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Jane says, I remember this being on Christmas time on Canadian TV, lovely, happy television event. My brother and I sobbed through Artax and then had to go to bed. What rare cruelty is this, Jane? So you get up to the Swamp of Sorrows. You basically get to the end of the first act of the story. And then, well, that's a wrap. It's like those people who are sent to bed before the end of Old Yeller, I suppose. If you haven't seen the end of Old Yeller, everything's fine. Everything's fine and good and everything's fine. That's all you need to know. All right. Um, let me see. Good. All right. So let's get into our analysis of the story itself. And um, basically what we're going to do, I think, is move through the events of the story. Normally here on the one shots, I don't do what I'm given to call a beat by beat analysis. I don't move through the story because I would rather pull out certain themes and certain ideas. But I genuinely think that the most interesting feature of the never ending story is its structure, is the way that it pushes back against, in the first instance, Bastion, and then in the second instance, us, the viewer. The idea of the never ending story itself is fumbled a little. And it's it, it, as the movie tries to communicate this this core metaphor, this core idea, that this eponymous idea, it does stumble a little bit, I think. But the realization that there are tiers of stories here is nonetheless vital and nonetheless draws the viewer in and makes the viewer in a really interesting way complicit in the resolution of the story particularly that final beat, which is interesting. And well, we'll talk about that when we get to it, assuming that we have any time left at all, of course. So the movie opens with Bastian telling his father about a dream of his dead mother. His father replies that they just have to get on with things, that they each have responsibilities, that they have to keep their feet on the ground, despite Bastian te Bastian's tendency to draw unicorns in math class and not hand in his homework. We learn very quickly with... with 
a deft surety of foot that Bastian is disconnected from his real life and is withdrawing into fantasy. And I dare say that everyone here live, at least, and everyone probably listening to this podcast is or has been to some degree a nerd. And we've all felt, I'm sure, that temptation to disconnect from the real world, to seek solace and comfort in the unreal. And not just to escape, but rather to seek what J.R.R. Tolkien called recovery. Fantasy stories don't just give us an escape hatch from the real world. You don't crack open your favorite book. You don't crack open The Lord of the Rings and simply slip into Middle Earth and suspend your experience of the real world. Rather, reading fantasy fiction, reading stories of all kinds, but fantasy fiction in particular, allows us to reconnect with what is most true and vibrant and vital about ourselves and our experience. It restores and allows us to recover our sense of truth and beauty and goodness and virtue. We are made whole again. We are genuinely restored by by good fantasy fiction. And I think that that's certainly one of the things that not the never ending story doesn't just accomplish but actually explicitly sets out to do i think this is a very conscious address to this notion of recovery that that really works quite compellingly i think even if you are left somewhat cold by the actual finale of this movie by by the conclusion here on the way to school bastian is beset by bullies he runs and the bullies throw him in a dumpster in what is like a surprisingly tough scene to watch as an adult like this is not this is not bullying. This is actual, you know, violence and abuse. This is this is pretty, pretty bad. Bastian climbs out and runs away again, this time seeking uh, refuge in an old bookstore. Uh, Bastian proves his literary bona fides to the bookstore owner, Coriander, played by veteran actor Thomas Hill. And Coriander shows him a very special, very dangerous book. A never-ending story with the Orin on the cover, which isn't perhaps, quote, only a story. When Coriander is distracted by a phone call, Bastian steals the book, leaves an adorable note, and runs out, then seeking refuge in the attic of the school in order to read in peace. And as a child, this was my vision of perfection. The idea that I could retreat from school and from the world and simply find a quiet place where I could read all day and never be interrupted. I mean, I should say, I was a nerd at school, obviously, as I remain a nerd in all circumstances. And I did enjoy school. I did enjoy learning. I was never uh, as troubled by school as Bastian is. And yet this idea of peace and silence and, and an environment that allows you to enter more fully into the fiction of the book that still, honestly, speaks to me very, very powerfully indeed. This idea that we can embrace the act of reading in a more full and transportive way, that books can be more than gateways, but can also envelop us, that we don't just pass through them in a metaphorical sense, but they can, they can, to some extent, if we allow them to actually alter the physical world around us. Those moments when you find yourself slipping into a beloved book and you realize suddenly with, with sudden sharp acuity and awareness that it has been an hour or two or four or in special rare precious cases that the sun is coming up and that you have been completely bodily transported into this realm, that happens too rarely. And honestly, more rarely as I get older and life gets busier and, uh, and less quiet. Um, but that to me still represents 
a perfect reading experience. It still represents, you know, something, um, something profound about the reading experience and the set in which Bastien finds himself. I am troubled a little as an adult. The attic of this school. I wonder why the attic of this school in particular looks like this. Why are there all these candles up in this school attic? What is this used for? Because it feels more like the attic of, of you know, an old house or something like that. But as a piece of set design as a place which can envelop Bastion and a place which can become, as the movie progresses, metaphorically representative, not just of Fantasia, but of Bastion's internal experience. It works beautifully. I am absolutely stunned by it, consumed by it. So from there, we leave the frame narrative behind. As Bastian cracks open the book and begins to read, we leave the frame narrative behind, and you might be forgiven for thinking, oh, well, this is just The Princess Bride. This is just another story where a kid is going to read a book, and the book within the, 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 book within the film, I guess, is actually the meaningful thing. And maybe Bastian will learn a moral lesson about standing up to bullies or whatever, 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 and it'll just be completely conventional in that sense. And the ways in which the book pushes back, uh, excuse me, I keep referring to the book within the film as though the book is actually doing these things. And that, of course, is not true. The ways in which the film stresses that relationship uh, in both senses, the way in which the film challenges our understanding of its core concept is really rather beautiful and begins far earlier than I remembered returning to the film this time. Something is crashing through the forest, awakening the inhabitants. Rockbiter, as we're introduced to him, snacks on the local limestone and tells of the nothing which has consumed his home in the north. The nothing is also spreading in the west and the south, consuming all of Fantasia. Emissaries are being sent to the ivory tower to talk with the empress. They set off once again and Rockbiter sees the coming storm, the rumination of the nothing. We'll talk about what the nothing is when we get to the final act of the story and Atreyu confronts Gamork because the revelation of the nature of the nothing is is genuinely fascinating, I think. But even here, right at the beginning of the story, it works as an apocalyptic threat. It works as not just a life-threatening event, but an existence-threatening event. And the scale here is communicated beautifully. These characters are not important. They're just not. But they do allow us an excellent and, and human point of entry, because this feels right from the jump as though we're crashing into different stories. And Fantasia manages to maintain throughout a sense of its own variety, a sense of its own heterogeneity. You know, Fantasia is supposed to be an amalgam of every fantasy story. It is all of human imagination wrought in, in, in sharp contrasts and in clean divisions. And that, I think, is absolutely vital. So when we're introduced to these three characters that clearly come from different traditions, from different narrative traditions, from different, from different worlds in, in, in the, the, the mythopoeic sense of world building, we are immediately cued to expect something greater. This is not just a fantasy story. This is already multiple fantasy stories. Reaching the Ivory Tower, I, I, again, I realize I'm so excited to talk about this film. I'm completely neglecting the YouTube chat. I do apologize. Let me, uh, let me, call, uh, let me uh, scroll back here. Jackie Boatman says, Fant quote, fantasy is escapist and that is its glory. If a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy, do we not consider it his duty to escape? If we value the freedom of mind and soul, if we're partisans of liberty, then it's our plain duty, best Tolkien quote ever. Couldn't agree more. This is why On Fairy Stories remains 
Oh, something perilously close to a manifesto for me, I think. It's, it's something perilously close to a, to a philosophical treatise, certainly. Yes. Good. Good. Um, let me scroll back still further. Uh, oh, Gildarts Winter says they want the school to burn insurance money. That could be educational. Hey, kids, if there are five boards left, how much money did we make? I don't know. I am odd, says Gildarts. That's a possible explanation. Yeah, it's definitely a possible explanation. Oh, Jackie also says, I've always had a hard time sleeping, insomniac, whatever. My dad told me to try reading to help me fall asleep, so I'd stay up all night reading as a kid. I used to do exactly the same thing. I went through terrible insomnia from the ages of, gosh, 14 to 16, maybe even a little earlier than that, and would devour books, would just devour them. After my family would go to sleep and the house would take on that hush, and I would feel, as Bastian feels, separated and disconnected from the rest of the world, and thus more capable of entering into these stories. So really, everything that I do at Point North is thanks to teenage year insomnia, I suppose. Um, yes. Jane says, I would so love to find a bookstore like that just down a random street these days. They're so rare now. They are rare, and yet they can still be found. I've managed to track down a couple right here in Oklahoma City. I apologize for this, by the way. You can probably hear that siren screaming past the uh, the studio here as I'm recording. Um, and Aaron says, this honestly couldn't have been a good school. No one looked for Bastian and they left the key to the old attic just hanging there. Okay. If we're talking about adult responsibility, I'm not looking first at the school. Where is Bastian's father? Where is he? in the back half of this story. Certainly after school, that's out. Okay, let's say that he's working. Let's say that Bastian is a latchkey kid and usually is by himself for a couple of hours, but it must be late at night by the time he finishes this book. I don't know where his dad is. Certainly he wouldn't have thought to look in the school attic first. Though, I don't know, from now on, if that ever happens, I'm checking the school attic first of all. Yes, good. All right. Um, so reaching the ivory tower, the emissaries discover that the empress has fallen ill and right from the jump, we get what is a surprisingly kind of medievalist perspective on royalty. She is called the Empress throughout. I feel as though she's called the Empress in part to recognize the fact that, that the empire of Fantasia is not a single monolithic culture. This is one of the great dist uh, distinctions between a kingdom and an empire. Empires contain multitudes. And that is certainly true of Fantasia. And yet the role that the childlike empress plays is more like that of a queen in that to a certain degree, she embodies her land, her world, in effect. The fact that the nothingness is consuming Fantasia and the empress is ill, these two things are explicitly in the text not disconnected. They are in some ways representative of the same root cause. They are symptoms of the same disease. And we find that out pretty clearly too, right at the end. But there is one hope, we're told, a warrior of the plainsfolk named Atreyu. And this is the first point at which the core narrative starts to push back against the frame because this is the point when Bastian looks at his backpack and sees a Native American warrior taking down a buffalo. This is our first glimpse of Atreyu and it doesn't happen in the core narrative, it happens in the frame. And this is subtle and swift and I really like the degree to which the movie holds back on this. It could be a simple note of confirmation. In another film with another structure, this could be pointing out simply that this is a hero with whom Bastion will empathize. This is a hero who is somehow representative of great warrior virtue to Bastion, but it is not that simple. Back in the book, Atreyu shows up and you guys, Atreyu is great. Atreyu is just great. I expected to be 
less than impressed. I should say, by the way, as we move into this, that it has been a while since I've seen The NeverEnding Story, and I expected it to be, as I so often am, tolerant of but unimpressed by the performances of the child actors, and I don't think that is valid at all. I think Noah Hathaway does just a great job with a trade who manages to communicate such fantastic humanity, such certainty, such clarity, and he does it with a real nobility. There is no doubt as he stands there on the the dais, whatever the, the top of the ivory tower is, I suppose, as he stands there, he is possessed of an enormous confidence. He is already a warrior. And that marks him in sharp contrast with Bastion. And this, I think, is where we start to hit the first kind of thematic conflict between the internal and external worlds within this story. On one level, I think it's absolutely fair to read the never-ending story as something closer to magical realism than an outright fantasy because of the way that it connects back to our world. That is to say, it is anchored in our reality, apparently. Apparently, if we take the literal reading of the ending of this story, Bastion really is recreating Fantasia by making wishes, which means that Fantasia is dependent upon the real world, and thus this entire story is more naturalistic than it seems to be for much of its running time. But there is, of course, another way of reading the never-ending story, and that is that is as a metaphor for Bastian struggling to reconcile himself with the death of his mother and in a broader sense to struggle with that adolescent conflict between the child and the adult. He finds himself caught between worlds, caught between the simple escapist pleasures of fiction and the hard, burdensome truths of reality. We get that called out explicitly right there at the beginning, and I think it's really easy both looking right at the beginning and then looking at the climax, to see Bastian's conflict as one of of hope, of belief, of faith, of, of narrative investment and narrative urgency. He has to still believe in stories. That is what saves Fantasia. But there's another way of looking at it as, as I say, a metaphor for his mother's death. A metaphor not, in fact, for her death, but for grief and grieving. We get a couple of points in the story which speak to Bastion's experience so much more fully than they speak to the experience of anyone contained within the story. I'm thinking, of course, of the uh, the Swamp of Sadness, and I'm thinking of of the heartbreaking scene after Atreyu is dumped unceremoniously on the beach in the third act, and he finds Rockbiter sitting and waiting to die. These perspectives on grief, these perspectives on hopelessness, this constant grinding temptation to simply give up this does not speak to what Fantasia actually is and doesn't even fully, I think, speak to the conflict within Fantasia between existence and non-existence, I suppose, between being and not being. This is not about the conflict with the nothingness. Ultimately, Rockbiter, maybe. But certainly, this, this desire to fight in the face of, of adversity versus the desire to simply give up these speak more eloquently to me of Bastian's direct circumstance and his grief over his mother's death. Um, yes, Gildart calls out here in the YouTube chat uh, with response to, uh, or in response to Noah Hathaway, he comes off as an actor who knows what he is doing. Yes, yes. Oh, and Angela's calling out the line that makes me cry. She's calling out the line that affects me. I Okay. When I sent out the Point North Media newsletter on Monday of this week, what I said was, this week, we all cry about Artax. And honestly, though I am touched and moved by Artax, you guys, it's Rockbiter. 
Rockbiter does it for me every single time because I identify with that character. We'll talk about him. Yes, as Jane says, Rockbiter staring at his hands is just wrenching. Okay, back to the story. We've got to get going, and I'm already, I guess, halfway through. This one's probably going to run a little long, you guys, just so you know in advance. Uh, so back in the book, Atreyu shows up. He is challenged because of his age, but he is willing to undertake the quest to cure the Empress. He is told by the counselor, vizier, who is this guy? I have no idea, but he is told, no one can give you any advice save this. You must go alone. You must leave all your weapons behind. It will be very dangerous. Firstly, someone needs to tell this man what advice is, because this is not advice. Or is it? There's nothing actually stopping Atreyu from taking his weapons. There's nothing stopping Atreyu from taking an entire cohort with him. Why would you send out one valiant figure to fight back the nothingness and to save the Empress? Why would you send out one boy unarmed and alone to accomplish this? Why is it important that this is true? Well, it's important that it's true because this is what forges the connection with Bastion. This is part of the, the transtextuality of the never-ending story. Had a great and noble warrior, had the kind of knight that we see confront the Southern Oracle gone forth on this quest, then Bastion would not have gone on the same emotional journey as he does. He clearly and explicitly identifies with Atreyu early in the story. So Atreyu becomes, as protagonists always become, something of an avatar for the reader. They become something of a vessel for our hopes and fears and desires. Even if the protagonist is nothing like us, we pour our, our investment into the protagonist first. And from there, our investment in the secondary world flows outward. But we need a point of human connection. And Atreyu is that point of human connection for Bastion. This is why I genuinely believe it is important that he go alone, that he be unarmed as Bastion, metaphorically and hopefully literally, is unarmed, that he be vulnerable in the same way that Bastion is vulnerable, that he be alone in the same way that Bastion is alone. We are drawing these connections right from the very beginning of the movie. Atreyu agrees and sets out on the quest with the Orin Medallion, a symbol of the Empress's power, which Bastion recognizes, of course, from the front of the book. And so here's a question. What is the Orin Medallion? To what degree is it a symbol of the Empress's power? Because the only thing that it does in the course of the story is guide Atreyu and Falcor to the Ivory Tower after Fantasia has been destroyed. But I'm not kidding. It was right over there, and it was also literally the only light in the void. I feel as though they could have found it had they just looked a little longer, and by a little longer, I mean like 10 seconds. That rock was going to move out of the way anyway, and they were going to see it. So what is the purpose of the Orin? The Orin, by the way, the actual real-life Orin, is currently in a glass case on the wall of Steven Spielberg's office. That makes me happy in a way that I find difficult to quantify. I'm really not sure why that brings me the joy that it does, but it really, really does. And I will, believe me, be searching eBay for replica orina. I don't know what the plural is, but I will be looking for replicas of that thing that we can hang on the wall right here in the Common Room Radio studio too. Um, yes, so uh, the main purpose of the Orin, though this is, this is the point, the main purpose of the Orin is not actually to embody the Empress's power in anything other than a metaphorical sense. The Orin is not the embodiment of the Empress. The Orin is the embodiment of the book. It is a talisman that connects Bastion to Atreyu throughout. They are literally holding the same object. They are holding the same artifact. They are observing the same symbol. And this is another thing that strengthens the, the bond between protagonist for us, reader within the fiction, and his protagonist. 
though arguably Atreyu himself could be a reader within his fiction as he moves through Fantasia. Meanwhile, the nothing summons uh, the mysterious Gmork. I don't need the Gmork really, except that the nothingness requires an avatar. Um, I do remember being frightened of the Gmork as a child. Uh, it is an excellent, it is an excellent word. Gmork is exactly the kind of name that you can imagine Tolkien coming up with because it is so perfectly expressive of its subject, even without context. We don't need to know what Gmork means, but there's no way that's a good word. No one good is called Gmork. Trust me on this. So we're, um, Moving forward from there, a week has passed. The Gamork is hunting Atreyu and his horse Artax. They eat, along with Bastion, another point of connection, and then set out again. And Atreyu ventures into the swamps of sadness to find Morla, the ancient one, the wisest being in Fantasia. Which, you know, maybe start there. Maybe start with Morla. If you know that Morla is the wisest being in Fantasia, why is Morla not your first stop? Well, because we have to exhaust all possibilities before we enter the swamps of sadness. And... Of course, this is one of the standout scenes as Artax succumbs to sorrow, succumbs to the sadness endemic to the swamp. And it is heartbreaking, I think. It is genuinely heartbreaking to watch Atreyu struggle, to watch him demand hope and movement and faith from his friend. I mean, it doesn't really matter at this point that Artax is a horse, and we don't even know necessarily what, what horse means in Fantasia. Certainly, I'm not sure that I would believe a real-world horse capable of, of suffering from existential sorrow and, and this kind of nihilistic sense of absence, which bespeaks the nothingness, but I have no trouble believing that of Artax because Fantasia is a fantasy world. There is, by the way, an ugly urban legend about the never-ending story, which is that the horse actually died in the swamp. That when you see Artax die, you are seeing the horse actor, the equine actor also die. That is not true. No animals were harmed during the production of this film. Actually, the horse that played Artax, if you can say the horse that played, I, I guess you can, the horse that played Artax was actually given as a gift to Noah Hathaway when filming wrapped up, but the cost of transporting a horse back to the United States in the mid-1980s was prohibitive. So the horse remained in Germany and lived there happily for the rest of his days. And for all I know, I don't know how long horses live. Probably isn't still alive though, is it? Let's choose to believe that it is. Let's choose to believe that somewhere in a field in a pasture right now in Germany, in Bavaria someplace, Artax is still alive and running around. And I like to think that he probably has that orchestral score playing as he runs. Um, <laughs> Atreo pushes, pushes onward to the... Um, yes, uh, yes. Um, let me... Oh, oh I'm sorry. I've, I've lost the, the thread here of the... Uh, I've lost the thread here of the YouTube chat. Um, Angela has asked a question. What was the purpose? How does it work with the nothing or what works behind the nothing? What is behind the nothing? Oh, this is talking about Gmork. What is it that is that is driving Gmork? We'll talk about that when we get to the, the third act. Yes, because there are some interesting and nebulous statements there. I, I kind of like that. Katie Livingston is saying Artax lives. I want hashtag Artax lives all over Twitter this evening. That would be great. Let's, let's do this. Um, yes, good. Uh, Jackie says Artax dying is so miserable. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, yes. From there, though, Atreyu pushes onward, stalwart even in the face of this, this horrifying loss. He finds uh, Shell Mountain and climbs to the top and, and summons Morla, a giant turtle. Bastion, while reading this passage, is also surprised and also lets out a, a scream, which Atreyu and Morla appear to hear. Again, the boundary between the frame and the core narrative is permeable, and we're, we're just 
building this slowly, we're building the connection between the two sides of the story and doing so really rather beautifully. Morla, again, embodies a kind of nihilism, a kind of fatalism in effect. Morla here, the, the quote that stood out to me, we don't even care whether or not we care. Even the absence of caring is incidental, is unimportant. Morla is as jaded as it is possible to be. And that is another example, I think, of the, the thematic heart of the never-ending story, the ways in which the story speaks to Bastian's grief. And I will say, to, to kind of settle this disagreement, to settle this juxtaposition, this, this hard conflict between the never-ending story as, as a, a fantastical metaphor for Bastian's grief and as a piece of magical realist fiction that actually purports to connect Fantasia to the real world in some way, I think both are true. I think that stories have the power to be more than one thing, and this story certainly does too. So this is representative to me of, of loss. Now, Atreyu has come through the loss of Artax, has come through grief, is, is moving through grief, and arrives at nothingness. Nothingness. Not the actual capital N, nothingness, but the lowercase n, nothingness, of apathy, of, of disinterest. And that is certainly something that Bastian would have faced too. So Morla sends Atreyu away to the Southern Oracle, which is 10,000 miles distant. Meanwhile, the school bell rings and Bastian, frightened by the thunderstorm, is tempted to quit, but he persists, drawing an explicit connection between him and Atreyu. Atreyu pushes through the swamp, slowly succumbing to the same hopelessness, to the same sadness, only to be rescued from the, the very claws of Gmork by Falcor, the luck dragon. You guys, Falcor is pretty great. Falcor is a great creation, a great practical effect, first off. As I mentioned, 25 puppeteers working simultaneously on Falcor's head, just the head, that's not the rest of the body too, but just that headpiece. He stands alongside, for me, the best creatures that came out of Jim Henson's Creature Workshop. I think his design is surprisingly subtle, surprisingly sophisticated, surprisingly capable of emotion and empathy and depth. I just adore Falcor so much. This, I should say, is our transition from the first to the second act and is, as Elizabeth pointed out as we were watching the movie, eucatastrophic because Atreyu does not earn his salvation here. He is succumbing. He is succumbing first to his kind of existential sadness. He's succumbing first to the loss of Artax and the hopelessness of his quest. Then in a second way, he is succumbing to the swamp itself, to this, this magical sadness that afflicts creatures within the swamp. He is about to succumb to the Gmork, the emissary of the nothingness itself. He is about as done as done can be, and he is rescued by this eucatastrophic intrusion of Falcor. For those of you who are not following along, I think most, if not all of you are following along with the There and Back Again Tolkien series, but just in case you're not, eucatastrophe is the sudden intercession of grace when all seems lost. It is not a weakness in the narrative that Atreyu doesn't earn his salvation here. This is a manifestation of the goodness of the world, that there is within this world still hope, still luck. I would like to believe that J.R.R. Tolkien would have approved of Falcor. There are certainly things within Fantasia that he would not have liked at all, and I'm certain that he, much like Enda, would have considered this more than a little kitschy. But I think that he would approve of Falcor specifically and Falcor's rescue of Atreyu from the swamp in general. I think that this is a moment that, that would have made the old professor smile, certainly. Um, yes, good. 
Aaron says, Falcor is wonderful and I won't hear otherwise. The dog-like head, scales, and fur, so excellent. Yes. Angela says, Falcor, I want to be his friend. I love him and his design. Gildard says, the nostalgia critic called him a giant flying tampon, but that's not fair. No. No, that's not fair. I don't think that's fair at all. Falcor versus Smaug, says Gildard. Well, see, here's the thing. Smaug is powerful. Smaug is devastating. Smaug is something akin to a natural disaster. But if we're fighting within the bounds of Middle-earth or Fantasia, Falcor has luck on his side. And it was luck, chance if chance you call it, that brought down Smaug. So I'm going to side with Falcor on this one. Though I suppose, technically speaking, Falcor would have to sacrifice himself in his victory. And I don't think any of us want that. So hopefully we can avoid the dragon fight between Falcor and Smaug. Um, so this is our transition into the second act here, where hope is restored. Even in the face of hopelessness, hope is restored. Atreyu wakes to find himself with Falcor, who also wakes. Um, Falcor knows all about Atreyu, who was apparently talking in his sleep. Atreyu demands to know how this has happened, and Falcor replies, with luck. He's taken Atreyu the largest part of the distance, but Atreyu must fulfill the quest himself, and this is absolutely typical of a catastrophic intercession. Nothing here is going to resolve your problem. Nothing here is going to, to resolve the core conflict of the story. catastrophe will save you, will rescue you, and will take you forward, but you still have to finish the quest. You still have to do what it is that you set out to do. Your strength can be restored, but it must remain undaunted. Um, so Falcor then introduces uh, Atreyu to a pair of bickering gnomes, and we get another little nod here through the application of medicine and also the interest in science to, uh, to Bastion's grief. The female gnome, that it saddens me that the gnomes never get names, but the female gnome says it has to hurt if it's to heal which has clear applicability to Bastion's removal of himself from his context. As he steps back from the real world, as he retreats into fantasy, he is silencing, presumably in part, the pain of his mother's death, the pain of his own grief. And you can only do that for so long. You can retreat in order to gather your strength, but just as Falcor can take Atreyu so far and no further, I mean, there's no real reason that Falcor couldn't have flown Atreyu through the Southern Oracle all the way to the mirror, at least if not further. You can retreat to regain your strength, but then you have to move forward. And sometimes it has to hurt if it is going to heal. The gnome then advises Atreyu on the Southern Oracle. Atreyu watches the night pass between the Sphinx statues, but their eyes open and beams of light fly out and the night is killed. The Sphinxes, we're told, can see straight to the heart. And I really don't know what to make of this. The gnome charges Atreyu with confidence. He tells Atreyu to be confident, and Bastion tells Atreyu to be confident. But Atreyu is not confident. He's terrified. He is terrified as he's approaching these things. And I don't know if this is a discontinuity in the performance or if this is supposed to be open to question, if we're supposed to be testing some other quality of Atreyu's in his approach to, to the Southern Oracle. It may simply be courage. It may simply be, be dependability. It may be his dedication to his quest, the, the challenge that he has undertaken. So I'm not sure that this works perfectly for me, but it certainly works well enough, and the visual effects are are continually impressive. That little sequence with the uh, opening of the um, the little opening of the visor on the knight's armor to to reveal the charred figure within that is, yeah, particularly disquieting. Oh, and Jackie saying the gnomes remind me of, of Princess Bride and Miracle Max. Yes, absolutely, 
absolutely the same archetypes. That is one of the reasons why uh, why the never-ending story in The Princess Bride would make such a great double feature. Kind of double feature to drive in, I think. Probably I'll just set up a giant screen in a field somewhere and we can all sit out and picnic blankets and watch them. That seems like a perfect way to spend an evening. Yes. Um, Good, good. Uh, so Bastien urges Atreyu to run. Atreyu, of course, even daunted here, charges in. Atreyu charges in. Bastien urges Atreyu to run, and he does narrowly dodging the eye blasts and making it through. Atreyu then approaches the second test, the magic mirror, which will reveal his true nature, something which the gnome seems to think will be disastrous. And this is something which I want to unpick, because I am left after watching the movie most recently, thinking that this is just kind of false foreshadowing. That really the gnome is just heightening the danger here and Atreyu isn't actually in a great deal of danger at all because the truth of Atreyu seems to be pretty much Atreyu. And I'm not sure that most men when confronted with their true selves will flee. And I'm not sure how that connects to either side of the purpose of the story, if you like, either as a grief metaphor or as a piece of, of magical realist world building. It seems to me that we're just heightening the anticipation of this. And I don't think it's a coincidence either that despite the presence of Falcor in most of it, um, that the second act of this movie is for me personally the weakest. The trials that Atreyu overcomes are less impressive to me than either the first or the third acts of the story. In any case, Atreyu, uh, Atreyu sees the, the you know alternate mirror of Erised here and sees within it Bastion reading in the attic. Bastion throws the book away, wondering if the characters in Fantasia actually know about him. Atreyu steps through the mirror as Bastion lights candles. And this is the first point at which I start wondering where on earth Bastion's dad is. The Southern Oracle tells Atreyu that in order to save the Empress, a human child must give her a new name. And this is, in effect, our turning point. This is the turning point in the middle. The first half of the story of... Okay, Let's be more specific. The first half of Atreyu's story is the search for a cure, whatever that cure may be. Now he knows what the cure is. Now his, his quest has gone from the general to the specific. Now he knows what he has to do. He just has no way of accomplishing it. The Oracle crumbles. Atreyu runs, calling to Falcor. They fly out across Fantasia, seeking the boundaries of the realm and the human child. Bastion, meanwhile, muses that it's a shame that they don't ask him because his mother had such a wonderful name. We'll talk about Bastion Mother's wonderful name at the end of the session, I guess. At the sea of possibilities, however, Falcor and Atreyu uh, encounter the nothing, and Atreyu falls, landing on the beach. Uh, the storm blows open the window. Bastion must close it again. We're paralleling more and more closely here the two sides of the story, the the... the intrusion of the nothingness into Atreyu's adventure, this direct connection between Atreyu and the nothingness, matching the storm that is rising outside of the school and its direct connection with Bastion's experience. We're really echoing tightly now. This is our transition into the third act, because without hope, without the Orin, without Falcor, without any sense of where he is or what is happening, Atreyu still acts. Atreyu still moves forward. So he wakes on the coast without the Orin. Alone again, he finds himself among ruins where he runs into Rockbiter and you guys. This is it. This is the moment that, that crushes me. And this is a moment that I think would not have been missed were it absent from the film. I don't think by this point that we're expecting to see Rockbiter again. We assume perhaps happily that he's still at the ivory tower perhaps he's still just hanging out with bat guy and racing snail dude and maybe they're just you know commiserating with each other waiting for the storm to come but the storm hasn't reached us yet but this is so much worse and of course 
<laughs> speaks to me personally because I have spent my entire life being a large man. I have spent my entire life being, you know, capable and strong and wanting to help those around me. And to see Rockbiter looking at his hands, they look like big, good, strong hands, don't they? I always thought that's what they were. To face one's own personal failure in this way, to to definitively lose hope, not because of the intrusion of the nothingness, though clearly that is powerful, but because of one's own direct failure. This is heartbreaking. This is about as tough as, as the movie gets for me, I must admit. And, you know, we can't overlook this. The movie actually does a very nice job of sidestepping the consequence of this. But let's be completely clear. Rockbiter is just waiting to die. This is like an on-screen... I hesitate to say suicide because it's it's nothing like as active. It is it is passive. We have seen the loss of hope. We have seen the loss of agency, even. We have seen the loss of self. The nothingness has already consumed Rockbiter in his failure to save his friends. Now it's just going to pick up his body because that is what is left. But even here, Atreyu continues. Even here, Atreyu continues to move forward. And this, to me is the closest point of parallel that we get between Fantasia as a whole and Bastian's experience of grief. Because Bastian, when he's talking to his father right at the beginning, is a shell. Something has been taken from him, and we get these beautiful moments of humanity. His dad forces a smile, but there's something authentic to that smile. There's something true to that smile. He is still, as hard as this is, moving forward just like Atreyu is, but Bastian is not. This is the final representation of Bastion's grief, I think. As the world begins to crumble and Rockbiter is waiting to die, Rockbiter might as well be escaping into a school attic to read a book, which I suppose would be another layer of narrative beneath the never-ending story, another way in which the story cycles and cycles and cycles. Perhaps, ultimately, Rockbiter would go and hide away in a school attic with a book in which he would read about people watching a movie about a kid escaping into a school attic to read a book about a, a hero who was trying to save a fantasy realm. We'll just keep, you know... It's narrative all the way down, is what it turns out. Um, yes, uh, let me see here. Yes, Rockbiter is heartbreaking and grabs our hearts at the loss caused by the nothing, says Angela. Absolutely right. Yes, yes. Good. Good. Oh, and Jane says, the fact that his voice falters at the loss of the stupid bat. Ouch. Yes, completely, completely. Oh, and Melissa says, speaking of the talisman, Stephen King's version hits some of these same themes. Good book if you haven't read it. I haven't. I haven't, but I'm glad to have it recommended to me. I've been feeling some Stephen King lately. It's been a long time since I read any Stephen King. I suppose the last Stephen King I read was the time travel story about the Kennedy assassination, um, which was pretty good, but not what I wanted from Stephen King. Honestly, I didn't feel that was necessarily playing to his strengths for all that we spend the first act entirely in Derry, which is a bold choice. But nonetheless, um, so I'm feeling some Stephen King. So it might be time to, to go and read that too. Perhaps that'll be a future Point North one-shot session. Um, Atreyu pushes onward, though. Atreyu does not give up. He has no reason to move. There's nothing driving him onward at this point. He's lost the Orin, which he believes to be significant. He's lost Falcor. He's still within Fantasia. He has no reason to believe that he is anywhere near the boundary of Fantasia or any means of getting a human child. He doesn't know what to do, but he still 
does, he still keeps moving forward. And that is true heroism. That is true strength of will and of character right there. So he pushes onward as the earth begins to split, eventually finding in the ruins at the top of the hill, a series of murals depicting his own adventures. And I found this genuinely fascinating because this is one of the ways in which the movie hints at deeper layers, hints at this not simply being a, a parallel structure, a reflected structure between Bastion and Atreyu, but actually hints at stories expanding out in both directions, presumably infinitely. That's what the Orin suggests, this paired Aruboros of, of snakes, you know? Or the title itself, The Never-Ending Story, suggests that these stories are going to stretch out infinitely in, in complex structure, in complex form. Who painted these murals? What do these murals represent? Is this a story that was unfolding? Is this a story that has unfolded before? Is time even relevant here? What are we supposed to make of another version of Atreyu's story, except that it once again reconnects Atreyu with Bastion? It is possible, I guess, to look at this as something of <laughs> something resembling an alienation device. The, the Brechtian alienation device is a tool which reminds you of the artifice of the story that you are consuming. So you will reach the end of a chapter, for example, in your favorite book, and you will be completely consumed by the story. You will be there. You will be present. It will be vivid and real to you. And then the narrator will say something like, but what happens next? Turn the page and find out. And you will say, narrator, God damn it! you just reminded me that I'm reading a book. Why would you do that? And the answer is because sometimes it can be very powerful to remind the reader or the viewer that you are interacting with a piece of fiction. And one of the interesting things that the murals do within the span of, of The NeverEnding Story is begin to draw to Atreyu's conscious mind the fact that he himself is a part of a story. He is learning about his fictional world as Bastian is beginning to suspect that his fictional world is not entirely fictional and that his real world is not entirely real. In both senses, but from different directions, we're kind of pulling these worlds closer together. And I find that genuinely fascinating. Um, the use of murals and then the conversation with Gmork, I guess basically this entire sequence of the never-ending story has now been added to the list of theoretical, you know, thesis papers that I will write at some point that I will never write, but which I will be very happy to read if someone else is willing to write them. Um, I'm genuinely fascinated by that. Um, he then comes face to face, as mentioned, with the Gmork, um, who apparently doesn't know who he is. Fantasia, Gmork says, has no boundaries. It is human imagination. You cannot travel beyond it because you are contained within it. This is key, of course. This is vital. This is one of the biggest ideas about Fantasia that's contained within the span of this film. It is dying because people are losing hope and losing their dreams because people are no longer connecting with fantasy. People who have no hopes, he says, are easy to control. And later, I am the servant of the power behind the nothing. It is easy, I suppose, to spin some kind of political conspiracy theory about the power behind the nothing. If we keep the population subjugated and hopeless, then they will not be able to rise up against us. We can control those people who don't have hope. We can control those people who don't have fantasy. We can control those people who don't have optimism and belief in a brighter tomorrow. Let us crush these qualities so that we can more readily control the populace. But the nothing is not... The, the absence of agency, it is the absence of everything. It is 
It's the absence of life. It is not tyranny, the end of existence. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this quasi-nihilistic argument about existence itself? Is the nothingness representative of peace? Is this an end to hostility, an end to conflict, perhaps even an end to those fundamental conflicts that drive stories forward? Well, it could be. But when the nothing is presented to us, it is presented first in the form of this, this riotous cataclysmic storm. It is anything but peaceful and quiet. And its emissary, its representative, Gamork, is anything but peaceful. He doesn't seem to represent, hmm, you would cast, you know, Hugo Weaving in this role if that was what you wanted to do. He would be benign and genteel and disciplined. And he would tell you, no, you can just stop fighting. Everything's fine. Stop hoping, stop struggling, stop being courageous. Just accept and the world will be more peaceful. That's kind of a classic fantasy setup. You can definitely do that. There are fantasy stories which have. There are fantasy stories being written right now which will again. But that doesn't seem to be what this is. And I genuinely don't know if. If this is a misfire, if this is the reach of the never-ending story exceeding its grasp, because struggle as I might, I can't find anchors within the text to connect threads of speculation to this moment from Gmork. But in a broader sense, I feel as though I don't necessarily need to, because of the way that the never-ending story is already pushing back against its frame. By this point, not just against the frame of the book contained within the story, but of the frame of the movie itself. These broader hints that we all exist within a continuum of narrative. Because of that, I wonder if this is a reference to a story that we're just not experiencing, a reference to a story that we're just not exposed to. If it is supposed to be representative of grief, if it is supposed to be representative of adulthood, if it is supposed to be representative of the putting away of childish things, if it is supposed to be representative of, of having your feet on the ground, and certainly the climax of the movie might imply that it is, then I think it's something of a miss. I, th I, I don't think it works perfectly in that regard. But I don't necessarily need it to work perfectly in that regard because the ambiguity is so deep and the, the mutability of this story at this point is so absolute that I am still compelled by it. I am still swept up in it. In any case, we should keep moving onward because I am technically out of time and we still have a little bit of discussion to get through. Uh, let me see what is happening in the YouTube chat. Oh, Becca's taking off because of course I've just hit my time. Yes, that's, that's what's happening. Yes. Oh, and Jane calls out that painting on the wall of the Gmork attacking just before a tree who sees him. So good. Absolutely right. Yes. Um, and then of course, when Gmork attacks Atreyu, there is supposed to be a shot of Gmork actually leaping onto Atreyu. Now we get a cut where Gmork starts moving forward and then he is atop Atreyu. We don't get to see the pounce. And the pounce was actually shot. But what happened was that the incredibly heavy, some reports that I read suggested that it was a ton and a half for the Gmork creature, the robot that was Gmork, I guess. Um, some accounts have suggested that it weighed a ton and a half. It slipped from whatever apparatus was holding it up and crashed down very close to Noah Hathaway and damn near killed him. It could have been terrible. It could have been very awful indeed. So when that happened, they said, no, 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 no. We don't need that shot. We'll just make a cut instead. And that I think was the wiser choice. Um, Atreya reveals himself 
kills Gmork as Gmork attacks. A nice bit of classic heroic uh, reversal there. Atreyu is simply holding his weapon as Gmork charges him, and Gmork effectively kills himself, which is so often the case when we have childhood heroes who we don't want to see kill and slaughter and maim. Um, and then the world is consumed. Killing Gmork has done nothing at all. In fact, even as we begin the sequence, Gmork greets Atreyu as his last victim. He knows that this is the end. He knows that this is how it's going to shake out. This is apparently what he wants. But Falcor flies in to the rescue, holding the Orin, and he and Atreyu then fly through the void as Bastion tells us in narration that this is the end of Fantasia. Fantasia has been completely destroyed. There are chunks of rock and earth left hanging in this endless void. And what is interesting is that the nothingness has also apparently been destroyed. It doesn't seem completely clear what has happened to the nothingness. The storm has dissipated, but perhaps the nothingness has simply been transformed. It will attack the ivory tower, or at least, hmm, the ivory tower will crumble. Is the ivory tower being attacked by the nothingness? Or is Fantasia already destroyed and these last remnants are simply losing their cohesion? They are existing on, on narrative momentum at this point. They have existed and so they continue to exist for a little while until they are forgotten. Is the nothingness still a player in the story at this point or has it fulfilled its ultimate purpose and destroyed everything? Your interpretation is as valid as mine. Uh, the Orin guides them to the ivory tower, which, as I said, is seriously like right over there. It's right over there. And Bastion eats an apple out of sheer delight. And I remember thinking as a kid that nothing has ever looked as good. Either his apple or his sandwich earlier. The sandwich looks amazing. I don't know. It's just a perfectly straightforward peanut butter and jelly sandwich or whatever. But I remember thinking as a kid, that looks like the most delicious sandwich. There's something about the relish with which Bastion eats this food that communicates its deliciousness to the viewer. Atreyu approaches the Empress and we come face to face with the, the childlike Empress who asks why he looks so sad. He says that he failed, but the Empress says that he brought the human child with him. The only way to bring Bastion to the ivory tower was to tell the story. The only way to get here was to get here. You can't read the last page of a story first and expect it to have any impact. Bastion has suffered as Atreyu has suffered. And this is, uh, this is beautiful. This is, this is just gorgeously done. This is absolutely a, a conscious inversion of what stories are supposed to do. In a traditional particularly in a, in a traditional narrative, particularly in a traditional children's fantasy narrative. As I said earlier, Atreya would have overcome his obstacles. He would have imparted some kind of moral lesson to Bastion. Bastion would have closed the book with steely resolve, gone off, faced the bullies, then gone home to his dad and done his math homework. Bastion would have faced those things which are driving him out of the real world into the fantasy world. He would have learned a lesson, but that is all. But here we see something so much more important because the focus is taken away from the, the moral applicability of the analogy and moved to the emotional impact of the story. This story is about what stories are about. This story is about that empathy, that investment of belief, that identity, which we find within our favorite works of fiction, this, and with which we imbue our favorite works of fiction. This is a really sophisticated turn right here at the end. From here, 
Well, from here, it starts to fall apart a little bit. I do like Bastian's skepticism. I like that very much. I like that as he is skeptical, the tower is is rocked. It, it starts to disintegrate, that, that we are beyond hope now. I do like that Atreyu vanishes entirely. It's not about Atreyu now. Atreyu literally was the avatar for Bastian in this world. He was Bastian's point of entry into this world. And by the time that the childlike empress is capable of communicating directly with Bastian by looking straight at the screen, you guys, it's pretty good. We no longer need Atreyu. And because Atreyu is no longer needed, he too vanishes. This is... <laughs> it's so powerful. It's so good. And then Bastian calls out Moonchild. And perhaps this is my... I don't know. Perhaps this is cultural. Perhaps this is... Um, Perhaps this is the privilege of my age. Perhaps this is the privilege of my upbringing. Perhaps this is just a weird beat for everyone who watches the movie. I feel like literally any name would be better than Moonchild. Because Moonchild is so specific to Fantasia and so discordant with our understanding of Bastion's world that it feels like a step too far. It feels like, give me something that is that is mellifluous and euphonious yes but also something that is metaphorical something that that speaks to give me give me i don't know phoebe give me something suitably metaphorical something that will speak to the recreation of fantasia without being quite so on the nose moonchild for me does not work i'm afraid to say yeah uh, aaron says yeah moonchild is such a miss jackie boatman says moonchild with a laughy emoji yes <laughs> yes oh no Aaron calls all the way back to the beginning of our discussion here in this one shot. Calling her Moonchild is like watching Phantom Menace when they get to the racist Nemoidian accents. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard miss. Um, Angela says, okay, I never knew what he said until recently, and I love that I didn't know, and Moonchild doesn't work. I thought it was Mariah. Mariah, I don't hate. Literally any name would be fine. Literally any human woman's name would be fine. It doesn't matter. He's already told us it's his mother's name. We don't have to make that connection and we don't have to know what it is. I don't even necessarily, you know, the beat where he whispers to Falcor right at the end before they bewilderingly transition back to the real world and chase the bullies, which by the way, they don't transition back to the real world and chase the bullies. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Had he somehow approached the childlike empress, instead of calling out her name, had he been there with her in the void before she has the grain of sand, and had he whispered the name to her and we never knew what it was, that would have been perfect. But I'm afraid to say Moonchild throws me out every single time, every single time. So um, from there, Moonchild and Bastion, Moonchild, Moonchild the Empress and Bastion talk about Fantasia and she gives him the last grain of sand, urging him to wish and wish and rebuild Fantasia, which, of course, he does, flying over the landscape on Falcor, seeing Atreyu and Artax racing over the plains, seeing Rockbiter, seeing our entire cast of characters. Basically, Fantasia has been recreated from Bastion's knowledge of this story. He is reinvesting his belief. And because he is reinvesting his belief, because he's making wishes, which is an odd bit of terminology, but I don't suppose it really matters that much. And I think that the notion of wishes communicates itself perhaps more readily to the child audience of this film, to the, 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 um, yeah, I, I, yes. I think wishes are more immediately identifiable to the children watching this movie than any notion of investment of narrative belief or whatever. Um, he recreates Fantasia and this is all perfect. Then they fly over the city 
terrorizing the bullies, chasing them down the alley, dumping them in the same dumpster, which Bastian, hid, uh, Bastian ended up in at the beginning of the movie, and then fly off into the night, and everything is wonderful. And hey, wait, did a luck dragon just leave Fantasia and come to the real world? Well, the answer is no. And the answer is no for two reasons. Firstly, we know that luck dragons can't leave Fantasia. This is actually a key plot point when we're searching for the boundary of Fantasia. Gamork is not in any way, you know, obscure about this. He says that there are no boundaries to Fantasia. It will just go on and presumably loop, loop back on itself. Fantasia is as never-ending as the story is, as the Orin is. You know, this is part of the, the major motif of this entire story. So it seems unlikely that Falcor could in any way leave Fantasia and return to the real world. But then, after we have dealt with the bullies and, and um, Falcor and Bastion are flying off together, we get this voiceover telling us that Bastion had many adventures before he returned to the real world. This is a wish that Bastion makes within the frame of Fantasia. He is still in Fantasia. These are not the real bullies. This is his recreation of this city street. This is his recreation of this little, I guess, fairly innocent power fantasy, but not super innocent, I guess. Ultimately, Bastion will return to the real world because he is not of Fantasia, but he is inextricably linked to Fantasia. And I know that we can talk about the sequels to The NeverEnding Story, but that perhaps is for another time. I think that the sequels are, goodness me, wildly less successful than the first movie. Um, and also just, just wildly less pleasant to watch, honestly. Um, so that to me is the, uh, is the, the, the best reading, the best possible reading of the end of the movie. I don't have to suspend my disbelief and believe that a luck dragon has, has made it to Munich where they shot these, these street scenes. But yes, that I think will do it ultimately. The NeverEnding Story is a surprisingly thoughtful and sophisticated and deft deconstruction and then conscious reconstruction of what stories are, particularly this anarchic uh, melting pot of fantasy, you know? We don't get a perspective on the guy with the racing snails story. We don't really know what kind of fantasy story he is in. I suspect it to be a... Lewis Carroll kind of story. I suspect it to be something fairly, you know, genteel and Victorian and, and British. We don't really know about the bat guy and what his whole deal is, but I suspect that it's a kind of somewhat uh, ramshackle, somewhat juvenile kind of adventure story about little pixies and little gnomes and that kind of that kind of adventure. We don't really know Rockbiter's story. We don't really know what kind of story would bring a character like Rockbiter into existence, but we don't need to. Because by celebrating its diversity and by honoring, and, and I'm just listing those three characters. Think of all the characters that we see when we get to the Ivory Tower, when we're getting this address from the Empress's senior counselor or whoever that guy is, the guy who gives Atreyu the mission. Think of all the characters that we see there. They are drawn from very clearly different traditions. Fantasia is right from the jump an amalgam of all of fantasy. It is everything. It is everything that we expect and things that we don't expect. It is all the stories that we have heard and stories that we have never heard and will never hear. It is everything. And that, I think, is key to our understanding of this story. Because Fantasia is not a place. It is all places. It is fantasy fiction. It is... I guess, to, depending on where you draw the line, it is speculative fiction. It connects back to the real world and is anchored 
to us. We continually create it, not as authors or not just as authors, but also as readers, also as tellers and receivers of stories. This is why the never-ending story to me is, is beautiful, is symphonic, is surprisingly powerful. It is because the never-ending story betrays a fundamental understanding of story, a fundamental understanding of humanity that I see all too rarely. I adore this movie. Having watched it now, I can guarantee that I will watch it every couple of years for the rest of my life and uh, will recommend it to everyone who crosses my path. And I am actually going to go and watch both sequels just to, uh, just to confirm my suspicion that they are not as good as I remember. But hey, if I sit down and watch The NeverEnding Story 2, the impulsively titled NeverEnding Story 2, then... If I find that it is wonderful and worthy of discussion, then I will do a one-shot on that too. Hey, why not? I don't want to be a snob about this. We all get to enjoy these stories. Okay, let's uh, wrap up there. Guys, I've run 20 minutes longer than I intended to. Thank you all so much for your patience. Thank you all so much for being here with me tonight. We will be discussing new Tolkien material in There and Back Again tomorrow, if you are listening to this as it drops. I urge you to join me for that because this week's There and Back Again session discusses Mr. Tom Bombadil. And there is a lot to say. And when we're talking about stories and storytelling, when we're talking about song, when we're talking about reflexivity within a narrative, Tom Bombadil is pretty much our go-to guy. So that is coming very soon. And there's just a lot more coming from Point North. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for your time. And thank you all for your support via patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. It is thanks to you that I get to do these one-shots. And there is a stretch goal out there, a milestone that I can actually add these one-shots into constant rotation. Now I'm doing one about every gosh, what, two weeks, every three weeks, something like that. I'd like to do more. And certainly I will have more Point North one-shots coming up in the near future, chosen by those people who pledge at the $20 per month level. So if you would like me to discuss any story in the world, any movie, any TV show, you might have to give me a window in order for me to watch an entire TV show before I discuss it. But any movie, any TV show, any book, you can head on over to Point North Media, uh, to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, pledge at the $20 a month level, and I am yours to command. That will do it for this Point North One Shot on The NeverEnding Story. Thank you all so much for joining me. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care.